Anybody was, who's willing to, I guarantee you, if if Robert Zemeckis, Bob, walked in here and we met him, and we called him Robert Zemeckis, he'd say, "Just call me Bob." Man, right off the jump. And you know what? We kind of do know him from his movies, right? That's He's, part of the goal, I would say, for every director is to get in touch with his audience. Uh, there's that old adage that you can only really get to know 150 people in your lifetime, or statistically it's been proven you can get to know that many people, really get to know them. Directors want to re- they want to share their visions with their audience, and it's their way of the audience getting to know them. Bob Zemeckis does maybe the best job out of any director I know of letting us see the stories he wants to talk about. Yes. And, um, if you haven't already, uh, figured out what we're talking about by the icon or whatever that we put out there, we are talking about contact a 1997 movie that came out July 11th. It's PG. Uh, one of the only PG movies that I know that exists that's got some kind of heavy stuff going on or yeah, an adult sure. movie. And it is Robert Zemeckis' longest movie to date at two hours and 30 minutes. Longer than Castaway by 10 minutes. Yes, <laughs> that we found out I earlier. found out earlier. So, and I have to put this out there. Sorry, I didn't mean to get too loud. Mm. But Robert Zemeckis is one of my favorite directors of all time. There is not a movie that he has made that I dislike, Except for Allied. I've never seen Allies, okay. so I'll have to check that Fair. one out. But <laughs> usually, your record unblemished and don't <laughs> we'll watch. Usually, it's good to over the top great. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about if you want to talk about Robert Zemeckis, we're talking from the beginning, romancing the stone in '84. All the Back to the Futures, starting from '85. We have Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is man, a, I grew up a on that '88 classic. Yeah, Death Becomes Her '92. I saw that in the theater, man. Yep. Weird. Forrest Gump '94. What Lies Beneath in 2000. Castaway in 2000 as well. The Polar Express in 2004. Beowulf in 2007. Flight in 2012. The Walk in 2015. And Welcome to Marwin in 2018. I, I I've seen this movie over the course of the last 20 years, 20 plus years. And I'm amazed at how well it stands up still. It's, oh, yeah. It's nearly flawless when it comes to, uh, that wouldn't happen. I mean, you look at the computers and the PCs they use, and that's kind of the only technology where you're like not really blown but away. But it's understandable. But it is understandable because those are the constraints of the times that we now know of. But the ideas that they're discussing, the theories they're discussing, the, um, the actual programs that they go over as far as SETI is concerned, uh, or the VL. LA, the very large uh, by array. the way uh, please explain I know what SETI is but in case people don't know the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. intelligence and this has been going around since the late 80s I want to say before that because it was definitely in in the, the creation reason, process yes definitely because Carl Sagan um, uh, usually a lot of people know him he's a very prominent figure in astrophysicists and you know engineering and stuff and he's um, helped with a lot of the NASA uh, flights right yes he's and the reason so, this movie exists yes he wrote this in the 80s um, who with a woman that actually became his wife later she didn't actually complete the script but they started writing the script and then it wasn't picked up by Hollywood of some or productions so he decided to write a novel without her and this is where this movie comes from, I guess, because the novel garnered enough attention for Hollywood to say, okay, now we'll give you a chance. Yeah. And, um, yeah, all oh, by you the way, needed was a New York Times bestseller spot. Yeah. Let me, let me say his wife's name because it's, it's uh, unfair for me Carl to mention Sagan's him. Carl Sagan's wife? Yeah. Or his late wife because Carl Sagan, um, actually died during the production of this movie. Mm. 
it's kind of it's yeah, actually he really visited sad. on set a couple of times too well um, he was there every day he was there oh. from the beginning he gave like a, a seminar wow. on all of like astrophysics and everything so all the actors got to know everything and then he was a consultant um on to make sure that the science was correct so a lot of the science you see in here and i really appreciate that so when you do see the computers they're not some hacker-esque you know like weird uh models going on it's actually just the boring you know uh numbers and letters that's how coding actually works guys that's yeah. how you would monitor audio and i would even reckon to say that you know, this movie is, it's actually probably more about audio than it is about the actual images on display. Sure. Um, even though Robert Zemeckis is known for being a wonder boy with special effects, right? Since the beginning. Um, and and he has this like little Spielberg-esque twinkle in his eye when he, when he films things. Because oh, yeah. of course they've been coupled together. Um, you know, Steven Spielberg has been a producer for a lot of his stuff. Um and they've known each other since college. You can even see the hat tips to spill. There are oh, some dialogue sure. hat tips in this movie that I could not uh, be, turn the blinders on to. The clever girl mention, which was two years previously, Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park. Yeah, so oh. there's tiny little like winks of the eye from one to another within yeah. their movies. They're they're really just a f- good friends. And, and by the way, Anne Droyan is the uh, she's one of the writers. That was his late wife. I see. Um, I think they got married after they wrote though together. I think that's how they maybe met. I'm not too sure on that story. You'd have to talk to her about that because I don't know their personal relationship because I wasn't there. Carl Sagan is the founder of SETI or the idea, the concept of SETI. Because w- when I'm saying SETI came around in the 80s, I mean technologically speaking, what is done in this movie mm-hmm. really started taking stride in the after this movie. Six, yeah, in the sixties. <laughs> uh, there's it's funny. There's the little green men mention in in this movie where oh, Jodie yeah. Foster says, uh, or she's asked, "So what are you going to do? Or, or what are you uh, looking for out there?" And she says, "Little green men." And mm-hmm. the first ever radio signal that was discovered from outer space in the sixties, I want to say sixty six or sixty seven, was is referred to as LGR or I'm sorry LGM dash one Little Green Men dash one. So there's there's really? tiny little tips of the hats towards that too. Yeah, and nice. the, the first radio signal capabilities of picking them up from outer space were then in the fifties and sixties as radio technology you know took off. Yeah, and the reason why I, I, you'll have to go look this up on your own how what year SETI was made and all that but I do know that Ellie Arroway was pretty much based off of the lady that runs it her name is Jill Tarter um interesting yeah so he was she was a friend of Carl Sagan and he kind of based her model around that but besides the other I forget their names I'm so sorry for scientists out there that um oh you mean real life life people sorry and um that goes back to as far as uh, Jodie Foster's character um, starting with the ham radio, right? Yeah. Um, and those two kid. scientists were ham radio operators that became these people that are looking for extraterrestrial life out there. Just a beautiful example uh, w- that you just mentioned because the first 10 to 15 minutes of this movie do such a great job of giving you historical context for where the movie's going to take the baton and run with as far mm-hmm. as, okay, here's how we've gotten to the point that this movie, it has to give you a history lesson with, without boring you and without really letting you know that it's giving a history lesson. And it does it exquisitely. Robert Zemeckis is commendable to the fullest degree here because the opening scene of this film, the the intro credits, well, beyond the fact that uh, the font itself is 
very historically known to be the same font as the contact novel. So it's the same font used in both the novel and the, I say historically known, but it's only known if you listen to Robert Zemeckis say, we use the same font. No, that's good, man. I didn't didn't actually uh, get that. And this, I do want to say to the people that are listening, Contact is a movie that you should watch multiple times. Yes. Watch it the first time to enjoy it, but then you need to go back and really find all the symbolism, all the, the little little things. Yes, there's so much there yeah. that it does take multiple Just viewings. Just a ton. And one of those multiple viewing ones that I thought I was on the brink <laughs> of glory with, you let me know you had seen a long time ago and, and had uh, observed a long time ago. But it speaks on that history lesson, that that catching up. So the intro credits of this movie are audio from, uh, and we start from the planet Earth where we're at, and we sort of are the the camera. It's yeah. all CGI. So much audio that it's a mess. It's a cacophony yes. of sounds, and you can kind of pick like the Spice Girls out and all. But that. what's even more important is that uh, the visuals, as the audio is playing, is uh, sort of a, a Pan- the backdrop. It's, it's panning out yeah. from Earth and going out into the universe, and it gets quieter and quieter, of course. But while the audio is playing, you're hearing radio signals that we've sent out, or uh, hypothetically that we've sent out. And the even more layered cool aspect is that they're chronological. So you get the very recent stuff that was sent out in like the 80s and the 90s uh, playing as you're around like the Earth's atmosphere area. And then the further you you pan out, the older the messages are to the point where a big plot point of this movie is the first... Olympic Games. The first Olympic game. Uh, well, not the first Olympic Games. I mean, in the Berlin. The first message that would have been received was the 1936 Hitler commencement speech of the Olympic Games. And that is... There's a very snippet of it. It's hard to catch. At the beginning. At the very beginning. And I, they did it on purpose because you more hear the songs like... Volare, whoa. I mean, you know that's Billy older. Billy Joel, We yeah. Didn't Start the Fire. There's... It's interesting the the selection of of content mm-hmm. that we would send out to outer space uh, into into the realms. And you know, I think that we probably didn't mean to send those out. It's just that our radio signals were powerful enough because we adopt because that's what the whole German right they were trying to say we're super, our we're supremacy. Superior, yeah. So we have this radio signal that can be broadcast into space, and so with that pride, people. Tr- try to follow and catch up and so our radio signals have been just leaking out into the universe for like i don't know how long besides the fact that we sent out a golden record with with all of the music and people talking on it yeah. about our history so and, and that's exactly what zemeckis <laughs> highlights here and the part that i love even more is that everything gets drowned out very quickly and you've got about 30 seconds of silence mm-hmm. as it continues to keep going further and further away so that you really get a gist where it's very hard for me to say like how would you not know that this is what it's like out there just common sort of understanding of the galaxies and the entirety of the universe multiple universes the scope of it is so grand that it, it can't even be represented adequately within this intro shot but the music stops and the sound stops at a certain point, and then it's nothing but silence. The silence is space, quote unquote, and it keeps on going. And you're going through these ort, these ort clouds, or uh, you're going through these lesser known sort of areas of of the universe that are so they're CGI, but it's still beautiful to watch. And you know what I love about that too is that. It's actually quite therapeutic as you're going further out. The Man. cacophony of sound 
drowning. drops away, mm-hmm. away and you're like, you're peaceful. And I, I think they did that on purpose. And then what happens is you get so far out, you actually end up in the eye of Ellie Arroway. And actually, Ellie yeah, Arroway. and actually this happens three times for each act. And the reason Ooh, is, yeah, every time you'll see a celestial body and then it goes to the eye of wow. either Jodie Foster's character or Gina Malone, um, who plays the younger version of Ellie Arroway. And I believe the reason for that is because Carl Sagan has uh, famously said uh, or believes that uh, humans are a way for the universe to know itself. It's pretty poetic. And that's what that symbolism means. There's so much in there. That's why I say watch it the first time for kicks and the second time go deep. Look for these things, the symbolism, because it's all there. Yeah. Every moment. It's like Zemeckis pays attention to so much detail. There is not a wasted moment. This is the leanest two and a half hour movie I've ever seen. I can, uh, I was mentioning this, I, I can storyboard out the main plot developments in like a 10 to 15 scene window and I, I've memorized them to this point because it's so fluid, it's so transitionally exquisite and every scene builds up to the next, which builds up to the next and granted that's what happens in most movies but all of this is interlocked within one larger story that's being told and at the same time it has to be uh, in line with the reality of the science of things, the philosophical understandings up to this point. There's so much that this movie has to tackle that's heavy stuff, and it seems to just take it so easily and, and handle it so easily. We're talking about some of the deeper questions in the history of history here, science versus faith, uh, technology and its place in this is in and, 1997. And it can only have been written by a bona fide genius. Mm-hmm. And let's be real. Carl Sagan is a bona fide genius. So yeah. if he writes a book like that as a narrative book to kind of uh, explain to the layman, like maybe me, who I'm not as intelligent as him, but I totally get what he's getting at. And you need to pay attention to real geniuses, right? Pay and attention. Then to, you bring in yeah. a genius filmmaker genius actors right jodie foster and i dare say matthew mcconaughey i do dare say he's a genius in acting he he was well on his way with this movie and this role and we'll get into it a little later yeah i I think this role for matthew mcconaughey is in a strange way it it was destined to be i don't think matthew mcconaughey okay i don't think matthew mcconaughey picks interstellar and has the performance that he has in Interstellar without this role earlier on. This movie feels almost like it is directly positioned as a prelude to Interstellar in a variety of forms. Like the as far as the technology and the pushing forth into the unknown, as far as the, the final scene, uh, of course, if you're listening to the film room, you know we're going to cover spoilers completely here, so this shouldn't spoil anything. If you haven't seen Contact, go see it, even though it's can't it's 23 it years days. old now. Yeah, it's 23 years old, so be it. There's no spoilers on this. Uh, but J- uh, Jodie Foster's character, Ellie, goes through a wormhole of sorts and a black hole of sorts on her final journey. Yeah, and, wormhole, yeah. Okay. McConaughey does the same thing in Interstellar, except it's more fleshed out. It's 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 robust. We mm-hmm. we spend a lot more time within that world than we do. Yeah. There's a lot well, of bits and pieces of this movie that are the Well, I think that founding. Interstellar took some of the ideas and ran crazier and took yeah. some of the things from, you know, like uh the Stanley Kubrick two thousand and one and things like this. And with Interstellar 
Um, remember, they actually deal with what they're trying to deal with this is that it's 26 light years away. And by the time you get back, you would only have aged four years. Which is mentioned in contact. Yes, but it, that doesn't happen to her. But it happens in Correct. Interstellar. Yes, it and does. And they actually deal with that. So now you're dealing with a different problem, which, again, we won't get too deep into no, Interstellar. exactly. But I did want to say with Matthew McConaughey is that it's interesting that he was actually supposed to be the lead in The Jackal and he dropped out to be in this movie. Good choice. As I a, can't see McConaughey <laughs> in The Jackal. I like that movie and I'm okay with gear and Bruce Willis. Yeah, but I, I would have have to say that you know from that that little uh branching off that makes me realize that matthew mcconaughey picks his movies wisely mm-hmm. and he goes for the juicy parts even if it's a co-part because he wasn't a main character in this jodie foster was definitely the main character yes. she, he's a supporting cast yes but he went from a main character to a supporting cast because he believed in this project and this is a project that he's into this is the reason why he went into interstellar dollars buyers club i mean he went from dazed and confused right this is how we all thought That's of him true. And I think that just because he played that character or he can play comedy, like, you know, Failure to Launch or Ghosts of Girlfriend's Past, that's all good. But to to say that Matthew McConaughey isn't a deep person, I believe that he actually is a super intelligent guy if he's picking these kind of movies. For sure. One thing he may not be good at picking at is the names of the character. (laughs) This is... uh, is, Palmer Joss. This is one of the hardest character names you'll ever have to remember. It's Palmer Joss which I'm expecting it to be included in the novel. So it's really Carl Sagan's fault that we're stuck it's, with this difficult You know, I'm, uh, I'm used to character. two first names, but not two last names. Yeah, what is up with Palmer that? Palmer <laughs> and Jess. All right. Oh, yeah. Let's move on from that. But let's, uh, I do want to give um, some credit to the other writers on here because Carl Sagan wrote the novel and, of course, the story with his wife. And um, she did the story by, but she bowed out when he did the novel. But the guys who did the screenplay is James V. Hart and Michael Goldenberg. Um, now, if you don't know who James V. Hart is, let me go over a couple of things that you will know. He did Hook in 91, the screenplay and the story. He did Bram Stoker's Dracula, the screenplay in 92, the Muppet Treasure Island in 96, he, Tuck Everlasting. Let me, let me, let me, uh, let me uh, press pause right there real quick because it's so interesting. This guy seems to have a track record with novella that have been uh, – integrate or have been adapted it's adapted screenplays those are all sure. famous literary works yeah even tomb raider cradle of life yeah those, sahara was a book i believe yeah, those are all very August famous Rush. very famous and like all-time legendary yeah. sort of uh books so he seems to have his niche is turning them into very presentable movies that guy, that guy is good. I'm, I'm going to say Michael Goldenberg does too. So Michael Goldenberg, and by the way, he directed and wrote this, Bed of Roses in 96. He did Peter Pan in 03, did the screenplay. Which is Hook. <laughs> yeah, basically. Order of the Phoenix, Harry Potter in yeah. 07, the screenplay. Green Lantern, the screenplay, which is a comment. big flop, yeah, that, 2011. Yeah. Artemis Fowl in 2020, screenplay. So those are the only movies. He's only done th- or five screenplays and he directed one of them interesting i mean sorry six because i didn't mention contact of course i helped with that see the those gentlemen and uh the types of screenplay writers that they are they're very uh, they got the right people to adapt they got the right people exactly yes that's the way of saying it without uh making people upset about it because what what i was gonna say is (laughs) (laughs) what i was gonna say is you've got so much material there already that it can't be that it, it, it's not uh, the same sort of 
uh, it's not the same sort of task to turn something like Contact, Carl Sagan's novel, into a movie. It is, it's a translation versus adding new material in because nearly everything that's in this movie was in that novel. Uh, from the details of the character names to the specific scenes and the dialogue that's had, it was probably an easier job. And it seems like there are a group of specific types of screenwriters that thrive in those uh, sorts yes. of environments. Now, I while I will admit, I do believe these were the right people. However, there's half of the audience that hate this movie because of the differences from the book. Hmm. I wouldn't know if, I wouldn't say maybe half, sorry about that. There's a group of people out there yeah. that absolutely hate this movie because of that. And is it more about the ending? The uh, stuff it's the about end? a lot of stuff. So, okay. I mean, like one of the things is that Ellie goes by herself. In the book, there was three different test, uh, tests and there was five people each, each, per, each one. So she actually goes with four other highly intelligent scientists out there to see that. There's all types of things. There's little yeah, differences There's here. no Jake Busey in the book. Oh, there isn't? No, there's Man. no Jake Busey character. You need Jake book. Busey, bro. <laughs> no, he was... Hey, shout out to Jake Busey. You, I want to say that you are underrated, sir. He is. And I, I just want to say that you do play a psycho so well. Oh, yeah. In so many movies. Oh, man, The Frighteners especially, well, which is another Bob Zemeckis movie. Well, he produced it. He, he directed. I, he did he direct it? Yes, I think he produced it because Peter Jackson directed. Oh, that's that. right. And hey, that's why in Peter Jackson, out on it. My yeah. memory, you're right. That is <laughs> I'm a, a Peter, Peter Jackson, Jackson movie. Lord of the Rings, bro. Mm-hmm. Dead alive. I was I was there since then. Edit out the fact that I thought Robert Zemeckis <laughs> directed Friday. No, well, he was a producer. In fact, that um, he actually did a Peter Jackson did a favor to Zemeckis on this movie and helped out with the graphics. Mm. So uh, there's other connections there besides Jake Busey being in both of them. Yeah. Um. So I want. I just want to. And I loved you in Starship Troopers, by the way, Jake Busey. So. Mm-hmm. Shout out to you there. You weren't a you weren't a crazy Jake Busey, person. But Gary Busey's son, if yes. nobody knows the name, another uh, eccentric personality. Definitely eccentric, and Jake Jake seems to hone it in a little bit better. Maybe I mean um, I don't know. Man. I couldn't see a Gary Busey personality in the role that Jake Busey. Are you kidding? <laughs> Dude, did you not see the game? Oh, okay, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that was such a good part. But surviving the game. Yeah. <laughs> was it Surviving the Game? Oh, Gary you're right. Gary Busey, yeah, with Ice-T. Yeah, I love that movie, The game man. is a Michael Douglas movie. Oh, yes, that's right, the about, game. Sir. Sorry, yeah, you're right. You know where I'm at, bro. That's we got to We got to do the game. Um. So, yeah, I do want to say that the budget for this was $90 million. Which seems okay for this style of movie. Um, it's probably, honestly, I think that was kind of a risk for them because a movie like this, uh, it seems like it's a highly intelligent movie. Maybe a lot of people are not interested, especially in a year where you have all these epic movies coming out in 97, right? Um, so I think it was a little bit of a risk on, on their part, but I, I love that they did it and it made 165 or about 166 million, um, worldwide. So it is considered a success, but it's not the blockbuster that maybe Independence um, Day from the year prior yeah. was. I yeah. mean, you have to remember this was released in July 11th. So, so it's a prime. This was supposed movies. to be a blockbuster. When they, summer movies mattered. Yeah. So you you have to think that probably a lot of people thought this was not a success, but I am so thankful that a movie like this exists because it's so good. And I know this is, uh, it's kind of hard to say, but when it comes to art or movies, it's not, and I know money matters, but man, I'm so glad that this is there because if money didn't matter and they knew this ahead of time, they might have not made it. But it, it, this this had a, a profound effect on a young Philip when he was growing up. And I actually saw this in the theater. Mm-hmm. I remember wanting to see this movie because I was so 
I, I wanted to know the mystery. It was I also rated PG, so you could go see it. <laughs> yeah. You didn't have to sneak in. Or I did sneak like in, that. sir. You snuck into a PG movie? Uh, we'll get, what can you do, man? We'll oh, man. <laughs> I got to hear the story behind this one. <laughs> well, that's just what me and my friends I did for a I snuck into Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, okay. <laughs> I didn't sneak into that, but uh, I want to say that uh, when I watched this movie, my heart was thumping so hard in my chest when Ellie gets... Um, put through the wormhole and i was so um satisfied with the effects that they did like when they actually filmed her like six different times with different um uh emotions emotions because Mm -hmm. and they did this in interstellar by the way you're talking about the jenna malone jodie foster facial interchanging sort of while she's going through the wormhole but not just gina malone but she's like oh god and then you see her like her dialogue itself and then you morphed yeah Yeah. and then you see that some of the things that she says is in the past but some of them are in the future and they come to pass like she says they're alive you know that speaks on the interdimensional or the interdimensionality of something like a black hole and how you'd be removed from the constraints of time if you were moving through one completely yeah. and i was my heart i yes. still feel the thrill There's that i had when i was young like i think i was uh when this came out 97, 97. so i must have been a, a le- 11 or 12 yeah, 12 14 uh but yeah it was the same vibe and uh there are many heart pounding scenes in this movie yeah. for ver- a variety of reasons and also to touch on this while we have a chance and i'm sure we'll refer to it numerous times because it's hard to ignore in this movie but the CGI job that was done in this movie, it's 2020 for context's sake, or 2030, depending on where you're listening. Um, but uh, this movie's from mm-hmm. 97, and there's not a lot of stuff, like I said earlier, that I'm that just like, out. that looks too 90 and you know, And you know why? I, I have to give props to Zemeckis for this, because if you notice, when he uses special effects, he uses them at least he tries to use them sparingly. And he uses them in realistic situations. Yes. Like, uh, let's say, the Forrest house. Gump, right? Let's say Lieutenant Dane's leg. Yes. He uses it appropriately when he needs to, and he covers it up with other techniques of filming reality. and make it look great. And reality. Yes. Um, notably, in this movie, uh, we're taken from location to location early on. Uh, we start with the Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico, which is infamous for the GoldenEye, also been used in GoldenEye. Yeah. It's the scene that Sean Bean and You Pierce know what? Brosnan. I was wondering when I was watching, I said, man. And, Where and, have I seen this? Before? Yeah, I was like, Dude, that's the array in the video game, the Nintendo 64 at the end. The end. Also the movie. Yep, yeah, I sure. was like, that's got to be the satellite. Cause yep. it's, but I mean, they say it's in Costa Rica in the movie. Uh, that's where Do it takes place. Yeah, it's supposed to be Costa Rica. It's really in Puerto Rico. But it's Yeah, it's probably really in Puerto Rico. It looks pretty similar. I've yeah. been to Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. and I loved it there. It was one of my best vacations I've ever taken with my wife. You've got miles of the jungle there, and then in the middle the of rain. nowhere, you've got this giant uh, <laughs> technological thing that affects everything. And you know, but the, even the like the the cabin that she stays in, the way it's yep. kind of put up, and it's still kind of beautiful, but very rudimentary. I mean, I stayed on a, a like a small villa on the side of a mountain, and I could see that it was beautiful scenery, but the, the villa itself was, it was cool. It had a big porch, but again, it wasn't like it had a, we had a air condition that was like a window one, you know? It's That's just the way they roll down there. And I'd like to make that trip someday. And uh, when the film room takes off, we might just have a studio set up down there. Ooh, right. Yeah, Manuel nice. Antonio, that's yeah, where we need to go. Exactly. Um, and we got it all legally, too. No, <laughs> there were no uh, question marks. <laughs> so uh, the CGI in this movie, uh, an example of how tastefully done it is, 
Arecibo, for example, there are scenes where Jodie Foster's looking out of a window in her cabin that like oversees the uh, the giant telescope and and all of the tech stuff. The satellite, you mean? Yeah, the satellite. The previous scene will be the real version of it, and then the following scene will be a CGI version of it. But your mind is trained to think that it's it's real because you just saw the real thing. So he's it, a real it's, magician. It's that man. sort of stuff. Yeah, it is a it is magic, Slide movie of hand. magic at the same time because there um, there are scenes where like he could play it off if you were Alfred Hitchcock or if you're a high end director you could play off the camera coming in through a house or through a window and how did it go through the window how did it go through the door and now it's just panning well they had that it's all, but it's this. all but it's computer generated in this yes well they it partly so that's what i love is that he mixes some with others yeah. usually and only he this is Jodie Foster has admitted this is the one her first time using blue screen, so it was very hard for her, especially on the scenes that demanded a lot of it. But what I notice is that like they will build the thing that you want to look at, like the the thing where your eye is drawn to, and this is why I say he's a real magician. It's misdirection, it's sleight of hand. Yes, because usually the the graphics are the thing you're not looking at. It is the accompaniment, right? Usually, the only thing that I would really say that stands out is the actual uh, device. Th- yeah, the device yes. at the end. I forget what it's called, but even that looks pretty good for '97. Yes, it does, and that probably perhaps is because the graphic artist went out to uh, Canaveral. Is that how you say it in Cape Florida? Cape Canaveral. Cape Canaveral. Sorry, Canaveral sounds fun Canaveral. too. That's, <laughs> that's what we're going to call it. It's, that's our new business. That's going to be our new uh, club down in <laughs> uh, in Puerto Rico. Yeah, and um, they went out there and they actually. Uh, photographed and they took the way it looked the shuttles uh, out there and they just scaled it because the actual device is like 10 times bigger than that so that's how they were able to get it like the distance and everything and um, I really enjoyed that they try to replicate everything on how it looked they didn't try to glorify what SETI is or glorify what scientists are they don't even wear lab coats because the first 30 minutes of this movie as mentioned, are a historical catch-up so that the audience is all at a level playing field for where the actual narrative is going to go. You have to know as much as the as the movie can teach you about all of these organizations, and so that's why, like, it's so beautiful. Um, the first the first thirty minutes, we are introduced to the Arecibo Observatory. We're introduced to SETI. We're introduced to the very large array out in New Mexico, which is where they have rows of one more Tom time. Skerritt. Oh, Drumlin. Yeah. Drumlin, that's his name. Yeah, that jerk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So we're introduced to the history of the technology that is real, that is out there, and that is doing this for a living day to day that we don't pay attention to. But since this is a movie, it's saying you've got to pay attention to it because, or the story we're trying to tell is, is worthy of, of you paying attention to it and you got to know your stuff. So it's, it's just, uh, it's very interesting. I, I, I I tend to think that Jodie Foster's character, when they shut down, uh, in Puerto Rico and she decides that we can do this on our own with, uh, Clark Kent or Kent Clark, however you want to see it. Who's also based off of real science? I believe his name is. Um, sorry, I wrote it. Kent Colors. He's uh he's he's really off of the a real talking life about setting. William Fitchner's character here. William Fitchner, yeah, the mm-hmm. blind. He's actually really buying Kent Colors, so he's based off of a real another, scientist. Another great character actor in so many movies, mm-hmm. and uh, which was absolutely necessary because he is the reason his his. 
He's hearing, a mentor. His hearing is way better than others, so he's able to s- hear little things from the frequency yeah. and tune into them. You see that very early where he meets Jodie Foster's character, and she's listening to something, and she passes by something very quickly, and... Uh, and can't off in the shadows in the background. And he says, oh, you had something there. Go back to it. And it ends up just being like a pulsar that was found in early 82 dates. or something. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny you remember that. But yeah, but he loves that. He's like, uh, he's like, well, I love it that you still listen. Because yeah, nobody got, does that. He's really like Daredevil then. Yeah. He's not there you Superman. Go. He's Daredevil. William Fickner as Daredevil. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't have been worse I than that. I forgot ben what I was saying before this, but we were. We were introducing his character. Oh, okay. Yeah, so. Yeah, you're getting introduced to all. Oh, I was saying that Jodie Foster's character when they get uh, when Seti gets shut down in Puerto Rico, they her and Kent decide to uh, go ahead and get do money, a thing. grant to do their own, keep continuing somewhere else. So you don't get to see the montage of her getting, you know, uh, telling. She's yeah, you told don't see no the all ugly, the, uh, the, yeah. the negative political side of it all. Even though this movie's very political, but actually, I love I love that they um, they kind of showed how uh, scientists get grants. Like I yes. didn't know that this. This is how it was done. And so they're basically begging people for money to continue their research, which they believe is super important. And that's where I feel Jodie Foster's character, who, by the way, this is the one time where she's dressed in a suit because she's everybody. All the scientists are dressed in Hawaiian shirts or just normal wear. And I love that, too, because that's probably realistic. But she was um, she was wearing this suit, which actually is pretty notorious for what Carl Sagan wears on a daily basis. It was in a, like kind of homage to him at that point because he had passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, but when she's appealing to them and she's saying, if you just have one ounce of of thought foresight. for the future, yeah, foresight, that you you could see that this is the hist- history of all histories, mm-hmm. the, the the experiences and the the research and she's all these telling things. this to a group of like Wall Street, basically, yeah, it Wall seems. guys. But there's mm-hmm. a camera. Watching all of this where somebody who maybe has more of an open ear to this sort of dialogue and this sort of discussion is listening in, played by John Hurt, which I don't think that was a mistake that he plays Hatton because John Hurt's most memorable... Alien. Well, I was going to go 1984, but... Oh, uh, I was going to go Alien. Uh, that's funny, because it's a mix of both. Tom Scarrett's uh, an alien, it's too, a mix bro. Of, uh, yeah, Tom Scarrett is He plays alien. the same character, basically. S.R. Hatton, who plays sort of the financier uh, to these wonderful uh, projects that Ellie has, but just needs the funding for, he's sort of like the Jeff Bezos of, of that era with the billions to spend on... Anything that he wants. Except he's a real-life engineer, apparently. Yes, that too. He does have uh, some qualifications for why he's so interested in this. He's just not a guy who's got a ton of money and wants to build rockets like Jeff yeah. Bezos. But what I was saying with Jodie Foster when she does that mm-hmm. presentation, I believe that is what really the movie what down? Well, what the movie is trying to say to people, that this is important, and people don't see it as important, but this could be the biggest find of all time but nobody cares about it enough to research that, or right? to fund it yeah. right so i think that that's part of part of it but um i think the real uh, we'll get into what i feel um emotionally or philosophically about this movie in a little bit but i kind of want to go a little bit more we have to introduce all of the characters I know, to man. do that because all of the characters are so distinct and unique mm-hmm. uh in comparison to who Ellie is and Ellie may be the main character but she learns so much from all of the supporting characters around her who are sort of there on purpose to be there because Carl Sagan 
if you want to look at it, uh, you mentioned who Ellie is representative of in the real world comparison. But if you look at it, I'm sure Carl Sagan's got a little bit of himself in this character as well. You've got the science driven passion, um, you know, discovery over everything sort of mentality that Ellie has. But it's brought on because of the loss of her father, played brilliantly by David Morse, who's not in the movie a whole ton. But when he's in there, he's very emotionally there. I like him in every movie I see. Uh, I remember him mostly from The Negotiator. I love The Negotiator. Was he in The Rock, too? No, he was in The Rock. He was in The Rock, right? I'm telling you, we've got (laughs) just today. uh, How many of The Rocks are we going to mention in every podcast? Was Tom scared in The Rock? (laughs) Maybe, okay. man. Maybe he was an we, extra. I do like The Rock, guys. I just, I don't mean to say it in every podcast. Sorry. Yeah, right. No, but there is some connection to The Rock in every podcast. <laughs> Maybe. That's okay. We just need to do a rock episode. And get Six over Degrees it. of The Rock. Six Degrees <laughs> of Michael Bay. Yeah. Oh, um, um, so I did want to mention, too, a little bit about uh, the music, the composer. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to kind of cut in there because um, you uh, you should know who this is, Um Maybe he's not as well known as Jerry Goldsmith and John Williams and James Horner, but we have Alan Silvestri doing oh, yeah. the composer or, or is the composer here. And this is funny because uh, he seems to have done every single Robert Zemeckis film that ever was. It seems that he always does that. I mean, from Romancing the Stone, from all the Back to the Futures, and here's where he veers off that I love uh, Predator. He did all the Predators, including the new one that I didn't like. Uh, he also did The Abyss. Father of the Bride 2, The Bodyguard, Fern Gully, Death Becomes Her Again, Super Mario Brothers. Again, Quick and the Dead, The Long Kiss Goodnight. Um, and again, every Robert Zemeckis movie, uh, and also The Mummy Returns, Serendipity. There's so many of that he's done. The so. sound design in this movie is oh super important because the For entire the- story is built on picking up radio signals. Yeah. And uh, the actual signal that Ellie picks up from... The Lyran uh, planet or the uh, Vegan uh, Vega Vega the Vega Galaxy. Uh, by the way, just one more thing about that composer, just for the new kids. Oh yeah, Mister Sylvester. Um, uh, he did the original Avengers and did uh, Infinity War and Endgame, and of course, A Night at the Museum, all of them. So, um, just for the new kids that didn't watch any of the older ones, like Romancing the Stone, he's definitely a part of that. And I think there's a lot of tunes, a lot of melodies that you might know. Um, he definitely has some memorable ones, but. Yeah, sorry, continue. You mentioned uh, Lyra is the constellation, Vega is the galaxy. Okay. So you mentioned earlier the heart-stopping moment in this movie, uh, mm-hmm. with the wormhole scene. One of the earlier heart-stopping moments for me is when she picks up the signal for the first time. Oh, yeah. And the sound go- grows creepingly large, creepingly large. I wanted to say that I've heard that sound before. Oh, you have. I have. Do you know what it is? Doctor Who, sir. Oh, no, I was going to say it's a sound that at least I would hope we all have the ability to replicate on the fly. When you close your eyes really hard and you you just like close your eyes, the sound in your ears that it makes is that same sound. So if you actually repeatedly close your eyes very quickly, I'm going to do it right now. Uh, But if you shut your (laughs) eyes down hard and you see the darkness that you're you actually in your ears you can hear the shutting down of your eyes uh, so okay that, i know that sounds weird it's you're not going to find this uh, on google or anything it's just something that i did i'm like where have i heard the sound before and if you just shut your eyes you hear the senses uh, maybe it's just the way my physiology is <laughs> <laid> up <laughs> 
Maybe you have a sinus <laughs> that we don't have. Otherwise, Maybe. a cavern. But it actually was developed from, at least a lot of people will say that it was developed from the TARDIS. Uh, that it was kind of manipulated to sound a little bit different, but people can still kind of pick it out. It's ominous. It is uh, very... It's, it's, a, it's a little dreadful, honestly. Yes. It's got a base to it that seems a little um, antagonistic almost, but it's not. No. It's just pure numbers, right? Because that is the language of the universe. I tend to think numbers and maybe music. It is a frequency. Well, she finds that out later uh, to jump ahead. She thought it was numbers, numbers, numbers. But then she uh, has that moment where she said, I had no idea. And she's looking at the poetry of the galaxy in front of her and all the mm-hmm. stars and the movements and all that. And so, yeah, there's there's so much discussion to be had about that ending specifically. But we, we got a lot to cover before yeah. we get there. Well, I think a lot of people, uh, a good faction of people were a little disappointed in the end. Uh, the that's because it's a very specific ending uh, when it comes to the philosophy of folks. If you aren't on board with what she experiences, it could be argued that you're going to have issues with the ending because the entire journey up to that point took you. I mean, we're we're along. With Honestly, I, I feel people that. Um, with any ending like this, yes. that's trying to theorize something that you can't, you know, fathom. Of course, people to are going to be a little disappointed when you show them something. That's it's what almost, I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that sometimes you just have to be satisfied with something finite that we can't really fathom. Yes. You know, and that's kind of what the ending really was. I mean, they made, uh, and it, I tend to they think that she was in a conclusion. Yeah, I think that they made like a hollow deck for her because when she puts her hand out, you can see the waves kind of changing, like she might be in a room. Sure. And they just made this so her mind can cope, and that's why they brought her father back. Sure. Um, which is also uh, kind of like a full circle for her. Something like a simulation theory outside of the realms of Earth, to where if you if you did make it into a wormhole and you were sucked into it, that logically it makes sense to to put stuff that you are familiar with everywhere so that you understand more about what you're going through and you can go back with more information. Because, again, the big, the, the juxta of this movie is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. The search for truth, sir. Inte- <laughs> the search for truth. That is what I believe it is. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> good point. <laughs> Uh, in line to the truth, there may be a big uh, middleman there called extraterrestrial yeah. intelligence that yeah. says you can't graduate to the next level until you reach this level. That's sort of the Kardashev scale and the understanding. It's, it's of been done for billions of civilization years types. Yes. So this graduation process that Jodie Foster goes through this, um, yeah, this journey that she goes through from start to finish culminates in her seeing stuff that she's familiar with that sends to her messages that she was seeking the whole time. And that's pretty important because what she learns from this alien life or this entity or this energy, she realizes it's not her dad very quickly, very early on. But she doesn't mind. She's not disheartened by it. She's not sad and she's invigorated by it because it it does create a, a closeness to her that she didn't know was there as far as the unknowns concerned. Like we don't know about extraterrestrials and if they're out for our good or our bad. This movie, this movie is pretty adamant about saying that, yeah, any level of intelligence is not going to be malevolently driven towards a le- lessers, uh, as far as the intelligence scale is. There's that great you mean quote. The James Woods character. You mean? Uh, yes, exactly. 
And he's so important on on this. Let's let's go through the characters oh, real yes, quick. We need to. You've got James Wood, James Woods, Tom Kitts Skerritt is his name in the movie. Yep. Kitts, right? Tom Skerritt, who represents sort of the political embodiment of how this would be handled from both ends. Well, he's a he's a he's a middleman for a scientist, and he's smart enough to play the politics. He's, Tom Skerritt is the yes. middleman. Yes. I actually don't think he's that much of a jerk. Honestly, I think. He's I, just in the right... He's a realist, he's, I feel. He's well-connected, too. Yeah, I think what he does is really mean to Ellie, but I think he did it in a way where he understood how to do it. You yeah. know what I mean? And we'll go through that again. So I, I don't have such big qualms with Tom Skerritt. Um, plays Drumlin. Drumlin. I don't remember his first name, just his last name. Nobody. They always call him Drumlin, right? <laughs> they always just call him that. Drumlin or asshole. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those two. Yeah. Uh, James Woods is the real asshole in the story because he asshole. is the politically driven individual who... He's mili- almost, militarialistic, really. Yeah, he almost refutes anything that's outside of the realm of his, his mental capacity, which is very narrow-minded and very by the book and yeah. very... He sees it as hostile. Yes, anything instantly. Outside. Yeah. Um, um, as soon as they see the Hitler, uh, as they make the connection to the Hitler radio signal, you've got the balances of science, which mm-hmm. this is where I'll support Tom Skerritt being sort of halfway. Him and Ellie both say instantly that, no, this isn't a hostile thing. This is uh, them, they don't listen to her. This is them picking up on the first radio signal we sent out in 1936. It's just the first one to reach them. Yeah. So they're sending it back saying, we got it. That's all it, there is to it. However, there is a little more to it because within the signal they sent back are these layers of hidden uh, documents and text yes. telling them, instructing them how to build the craft, which Zemeckis's use of media in this movie and of the communication aspect of messages that are recorded, messages that are either radio or television messages, these... W- it's not like you. We can theorize, and the optimistic side of me wants to say this: that the words that we speak out of our mouth are actually picked up on by extraterrestrial uh, beings out there, and that they wouldn't wouldn't necessarily want to see TV and and use that as what is representative of us. Even though TV can track history, and so can radio, and all that. Once they were past that, they would want to get to know the actual people who were living on the planet and get to know them a little bit closer. So, you know, go with whatever you want as far as that's concerned. They might yeah. they might inject themselves in the population. They might yeah. uh, observe from afar and start abducting people for positive reasons. Or they might do something that we can't even contemplate. But in this movie, there is a specific in- insinuation that TV, radio, and recorded history in those formats are very important to our outreach to outs, outer They're realms. our representative. Yes. If you could send them a, a show, what show would you send them? Today or yeah, all Anything time? of all time. Night Riders. Was Night, the first. Oh my God, Night they're going to kill us. <laughs> <laughs> you can't send Hasselhoff as a representative, man. It's not Hasselhoff, it's Kit. <laughs> oh. I want them... I want them to hear Kit. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I'd send them Jean-Luc Picard from Star Trek. 
just he, who the he's the one of the best of us. Himself. The character, how, which, <laughs> I would try to trick them in thinking he like was a, a real person. Card? I mean, how oh, would they okay. know he wasn't true? That's fair. They would just think he was real. I mean, they're like, wow, these guys are really on it. <laughs> Man, that's that's actually not a bad not a bad one. I, when you said that we wanted to talk about media, I wanted to go a different route as okay. well. So the way Robert Zemeckis uses media in here is quite realistic. He actually used real CNN footage from of, Bill and Bill, of Bill Clinton. Clinton on the South Lawn talking about the meteorite that they found in Antarctica and the OKC bombing. Yeah. Yes, that and also Heaven's Gate. There was like a little snippet in yep. San Diego of the bodies. The, the so. research, the dedication of Robert Zemeckis mm-hmm. to sit through what I would say is hundreds of hours, maybe not hundreds, maybe 10 hours or so of presidential footage and to say, oh, I want to run with this one. But he probably had it in mind. Well, it was actually fortuitous. They weren't going to they weren't going to do that. Um, in fact, they were going to use another speech. But uh, when this movie was being made, that's when that happened. When Bill Clinton went on the South Lawn. And, OKC. Yeah. And when he mm. said that, he was like, oh, this is perfect because that's fair. That, that meteorite ended up being from Mars. And then he said some uh, yes. crazy stuff that fit it. And he was like, this is perfect. So it was very, it was quite fortuitous that that happened during the production of this movie. Did Bill Clinton get any royalties for this movie? Because he's know, damn near a supporting actor. So can you use a president without their, of their likeness without having them sign a disclosure? This because is the, is the president public? Is that what it is? Well, is the visual effect an independent creation as well because it's essentially in 1997 this is the equivalent of a deep fake uh oh it, yeah it is a this is deep the start fake of deep for 97 yes they, there are scenes in this movie where you're watching bill clinton talk about what's happening in the movie and unless you're really keen and abreast on the on the fact that it's not really it is really bill clinton but he's not really there in the white house press conference talking about jodie foster's character uh going out into space he's talking about something else but Zemeckis brought in the footage. So he sort of, it's like uh, hybridizing a YouTube video mm-hmm. and changing the music a little bit or changing the trailer that is copywritten by a movie studio just a little bit. You slow it down. I'm sure they could get away with it. But then again, maybe Robert Zemeckis had the connections to, uh, he did the same thing in Forrest Gump. Yeah, he when sure Forrest did. Gump, he sure did. He when did Forrest the, Gump meets Nixon, uh, Tricky Dick, and uh, yeah, it's it's the same thing. There's a, this is in his arsenal. So either Zemeckis is very well tied and well connected in the ranks of politics, and they can do this without any monetization involved, mm-hmm. or there's an independent creator clause that says you can take footage and you can turn it into something new. Well, that's why I'm saying like you can do that with stock footage, right? Of history. So after a certain amount of time, but I'm wondering because that was happening at the time that can you, the the thing is, is that you, like if you were on the street and I filmed somebody's face, I couldn't release that without a release form from that person. This actually changed movies. After this movie, CNN banned any kind of uh, use in any movies um, period. That's so crazy. the only person that, or, or any of their anchors or anybody that's on their channel, the only person that ended up being in movies later was probably like Larry King or and Sanjay Jay Leno. Gupta because he was in Contagion. Yes, but we're talking about actual like anchors because oh, all I the see. anchors that were there or the people that did like hardball and Larry you know all those King, things. Brian, Brian, there were real people You're like right. at the at the time. Like so, that's why it was so controversial, and CNN did not like that, and they drew up a new re- regulations after that. So it changed uh, mm. film after that. So they were upset about it. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So I, I thought it was. 
you know, when you when you look at this movie, there's a lot of his, historical facts when it comes to this movie. And again, it gets glossed over because of the ama- amazing thing. And I did want to go in because we forgot to mention uh, Angela Bassett, who yeah. is a, a strong woman who's she badass a, in this movie. She has a role. Uh, it's not as pronounced as everyone else's role in this movie, but she is definitely the voice of reason in the politics. Yes. She's hard and she understands things, but she tries to be a good person, it seems. And she's definitely uh, highlighted in certain parts of the Bill Clinton speech, you can see her pass him up. Yeah. And it's weird because they... And That's the Zemeckis magic. Yeah, thing. and she also is sitting next to him at the conference table, if you yep. notice. So it's like you see her and that's when... obviously Bob. In her interview, she's like, that's one of the reasons why I want to do this movie because I get to be in the movie with Bill Clinton. And I was like, wow, okay. It's He's not even really there, but okay. Yeah, that's not, that's he's it. off walking in the background and you see a, a bushy, <laughs> uh, gray-haired gentleman of, of tall stature and you're like, dang, that was really good, Bob. You really pulled that off. And uh, yeah, it's the CGI, or, or not the CGI, but the blending of reality versus distorted reality is just seamless to the point where it's... I love watching Robert Zemeckis do that kind of stuff. Yeah, so I did want to go a little bit into that media and I did also want to say that... Um, I want to give Carl Sagan definitely a little bit more credit for, uh, and also the, probably a screenplay, because I don't know if this happened um, in the books. I didn't read the book, so I have to put that out there. I just know Jody about Foster the book. narrates the book. Oh, really? She has a Man, version. I'm going to have to get contact. that audible. Yeah. But um, I want to say that they had the forethought to think about how civilization would react to information like that. I, one of the things that opened my eyes as a young person is that wow, there are so many different cultures and different types of thought that when they actually get to um, to the array in New Mexico, you see these you know crazy evangelists and yeah. Native Americans. And, and Jake Busey. Yeah, Jake Busey. You see uh, Elvis impersonators and you see the um, alien insurance guys, which they had to pay those guys because those, those were real guys. Yeah. <laughs> so that was kind of funny. Yeah, because they, they filmed that scene in that area and they just invited the locals to fill in as their mm-hmm. extras, which is probably the smartest thing to do in, in for the sake of this uh, movie because you want the authenticity. Probably Roswell people, I bet. The yep. people that are really into aliens and UFOs. That's And they brought their own costumes, by the way. Yep. They literally, and it's it's kind of goes back to uh, an older podcast that we did, our episode of Deep Impact. It's kind of similar. Yes. They invited 3,000. To clog the highway. Yeah, but they did it out in the desert this time mm-hmm. and they had like Star Trek fans and all these different types of uh, Elvis impersonators. Anybody that's at all excited about UFOs or aliens, they were there. Yeah, and uh, if you take a look at recent events, well, not super recent, but from about a year ago, the storming of Area 51 is probably the best comparison. Those uh, are the you types want to call of it extras. storming? Well, the quote-unquote <laughs> storming, yes. But the crowd that was in attendance there is kind of uh, in line with the folks that you see here, even yeah. though, for the sake of this movie... Yeah, that's how I would see it going down, because at that point in the film, the general population knew that the radio signal had been reached. And there's recent current events from the real SETI of which they've uh, gotten some transmitted you know, signals, yes. some from other galaxies and, and through wormholes. We've recently seen that cigar-shaped... Oh yeah, uh, asteroid onomatopoeia, onomatopoeia, or something like that. It was <laughs> discovered from. I'm butchering that name, of course. It's Amuamua, I think. Uh, discovered yeah. by a Hawaiian telescope. They don't even call it an asteroid. They call it a satellite now because they're like not even. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, but that did literally come from another 
another realm Galaxy. of space. Yeah. Because, and that's been proven. So nothing, nothing is shaped like that in our, yeah, that we've seen. Exactly. So it's very interesting that we are catching up to where contact took us in two and a half hours. We're sort of like, uh, everything's building up to the point where we're at in 2020, but strangely, you've got a bunch of James Woods around who just don't want to have that discussion and they want to put a clamp on it as quickly as possible. I don't think it's up to James Woods. Like, it's not in this movie up to James Woods. And by the end of the movie, James Woods has that great quote where uh, they talk about the amount of time of recording that is captured from... 18 hours. 18 hours. Well, that is interesting, isn't it? He knew. And that's, <laughs> he knows, but his real world... He grilled her still. He wanted to shut her down. His real world contracts and obligations still will not allow him to be okay with the fact that it's real. Well, I think he's okay with it. The, the, the problem is, is that it's that he's... The ramifications? It's too... He's the type of person that wants to cover it up and wants to keep things secret. And he was already mad that she released that information in the beginning when he said you should have contacted the president first. And she's like, this is not this message isn't for America only. Right. You know, and so he's always in damage control. Right. That's what I see him. He's always trying to keep things from the public because they don't trust us. I mean, they released the UFO Pentagon thing, right? Nobody cared. We're all at a the point. The president of the United States, the, the real president of our current United States, said himself, that's one hell of a video. That's it. Yeah. That, that's his response. But, but the everybody, there's half of the people that said, told you so, and the other half just doesn't care. And mm-hmm. it didn't cause a panic, not like World of the World's radio broadcast in the old days. Mm-hmm. It didn't do what everybody thought was going to happen. Um, but, you know, I mean... Like the theme of this movie, or not the theme, but the recurring phrase is, if there isn't any intelligent life out there, it'd be an awful waste of space, right? Mm -hmm. The mathematical probability that there's no sentient, intelligent life out there. It's improbable. It's improbable. If you look at our environment and our circumstances and the fact that on much lower levels of life within us and other species, it's microscopic life. So. Unless unless you're arrogant enough to say that we're the top of the food chain when it comes to intelligent life in the entirety of the galaxy, which some people will say we are, and they're in the ignorant uh, base of folks, in my opinion, yeah. it does reach outside of this planet. It clearly does. For me, there's no doubt in my mind that there has to be sentient, intelligent life, or and this is what I actually think it's the a movie... It's to space. Yeah, there's a couple of things that I think the movie emotionally is about um because i think we went over a little bit about the science part of it right but for me the movie is actually about loneliness because if you look at jodie foster's character she had her dad from the beginning Mm -hmm. and when he died at a very early age right Mm -hmm. she was alone and she took responsibility and she tells the priest that if i should have had medication downstairs if i could have gotten to it quicker i could have saved him and that's a lot to shoulder as a nine-year-old so she has she has basically become so lonely that she is searching for life out there because she doesn't want to feel lonely anymore. And right? God, and God, in her case, might not be enough. Well, I think that maybe she, the the evidence isn't there for her. Right? She needs empirical evidence. She's at one of nine, those logical m- minds. At nine, even then, yes, I think mm. so. And because she even talks about that when she went to the Sunday school, that she would ask annoying questions That's and they true. ask and her dad to pick her up. Yeah. So she has one of those inquisitive minds that needs empirical evidence. Now, when she meets uh, Matthew McConaughey's character, Palmer, Palmer Joss, Joss 
he is a man of the cloth on the back without a man of the cloth, right? Yes. He says he can't abide by celibacy. He's kind of a cool, but he has this, this righteousness <laughs> cause. Matthew McConaughey. He's Matthew McConaughey. He probably smokes a little weed out yeah, there, too, in Costa Rica. A little Rica. pot in Austin or yeah. Costa Rica, wherever he's at. He's wearing those shells on his neck and yeah. stuff. But anyways, um, puka shells, I think. But anyways... <laughs> You know, the thing I love about their love story, because I do believe it is a love story. Oh, yeah. Um, because their ide- ideologies differ Clash. greatly, and but they are attracted to each other yes. because they are basically in search of truth, yes. both of them. Yes. And, they, and the thing is, is that she gets scared when she gets too close to him that she basically brushes him off, right? And I, what was the quote that she says, or he says to her? Um that makes her like just get up and she she has to go to work and he's like did i miss something because he wants to like go out with her again and she keeps giving him you know the kind of brush uh, yeah, off i don't remember that quote i forget that i wanted to remember it because it is and it is it says something about her because in the beginning the reason why she ends up liking him is because he says well it's an awful waste of space right and that yes, like talks to that's him that's the trigger um that's the first synchronicity that she picks up on because her dad mentioned that yes. or word for word said that and so here along comes a, a man who has no idea of the relationship she had with the father but he's saying the same things he also is coming from a different background that her father did but he's saying the same things so she's smart enough to pick up on the fact that there's something there pulling her to take note of what is being said and it sort of drives her in the same way palmer joss is driven by the fact that Ellie is uh, very scientific-minded as well, and he understands that he doesn't have all the answers. He's okay with not having all of the answers when it comes to science and not being of that of that particular realm of of thought. But he doesn't want it to. Uh, he he doesn't want any of that to interfere with the love that he has for her. And the interesting part of their love story is their handing off of the Cracker Jack compass yeah. back and forth, back and forth. Whenever one feels like the other, the other one is deviating from who the they love. Yeah, the, their individual path. They hand off that compass to one another to say, you know, find your way back to who it was that I fell in love with and that uh, we shared that special moment in yeah. Puerto Rico. And so, uh, Costa Rica, sorry. Uh, yes. <laughs> I'm going to have a hard time calling it Costa Rica. Here. We got Dotson here. Dotson. <laughs> but I, See, I, nobody cares. Yeah. I do want to talk about that. Um, there's a line. That's uh, probably a shout out to Spielberg. Probably another one, yeah. right? But I also wanted to say that in the very beginning when she's a kid, the very when you see Ellie as a kid and she's talking to dad and she's on that that uh, ham radio, she says, far enough that we can talk to mom. Mm. So you can see where her obsession of finding people that she, because she's lonely. Lost. Yeah, she's lost. And when her dad dies, she's completely lost. Yes. So she's searching for the people that she loves, kind of like intelligent life, she thinks that may. I think sometimes she thinks maybe the afterlife is out there, maybe. and it's encouraged by her professional choice yeah. because that's exactly what it's about. And she mm-hmm. says that a couple of times when she gets shut down by Arecibo and the she four takes years. It personal. She takes it personally. She says, "I'm not going to stop, just so you know. Like I'm going to go out there." And she's the one in the field every day, sun up to sundown, just with headphones yeah. on her head, waiting for a, a single tiny little radio signal to come through. And I, and I think that she might not even know that it's so embedded in her at such an early age. But as the audience, we should pick up on that as far as in the back of our heads that 
She's really searching for her loved, uh, lost loved ones, right? She's trying to not be lonely, but as soon as somebody gets close to her, she gets scared and runs away with Matthew McConaughey. And it's because of something that he said. I forget. Oh, man, please go back and watch it. I don't have There's it off the top of, of my quotes. head. I should have wrote it down. But remember, it comes full circle when she actually meets the aliens. They take his image. So mm-hmm. in essence, she did find him, but she found more. And now when she came back, she doesn't feel as alone anymore. And what I love about this, because I, I told you this last time when we were talking about it, is that I feel actually that Matthew McConaughey and Jodie Foster's character are actually two sides of what's inside of me or what's inside of a lot of people. I definitely battle with um, uh, the logical, empirical evidence type of thing. I'm definitely skeptical. I doubt a lot of stuff. I'm always questioning it. And then there's the other faith side of me, the the person that kind of lets go and believe something without the evidence because of an experience that I had. And that's what where Ellie gets to in the very end because I think that's the point of the movie is yes. to say uh, the battle is either necessary to where you get to the point of peacefulness and, and understanding and you understand why you had the battle in the first place or the other flip side of that is that the battle is never necessary because the two can coexist to begin with. I think that's na- that latter one is where I'm at is that at a very early age when I saw this movie, it answered a lot of questions that I had so much. Like I was almost a little angry that I didn't know the answers to a lot of the questions mm-hmm. and I needed evidence. And, you know, the thoughts of is there a God or or um, intelligent design, whatever you want to call it, right? A deity or is there uh, everything? Is there a reason for it? And right. all these things is, is it all real? But in the end, like it, it soothed me this movie because it, re- it let me understand that the soup faith, is okay. Faith, well, yeah, but faith and science doesn't have to be different. It can yes. work together. And that's what I think because when she makes the argument when she's in court, or let's go back before that, when when she sees Matthew McConaughey at the party, when she gets dressed up, she asks uh, Angela Bassett, Angela Bassett where like, can I get where a, can nice I get a dress? nice dress? I'm Jodie Foster. I never dress up. Yeah. Which, yeah, unless she's at the Academy Awards. Yeah, but, we're getting, <laughs> or sitting down with Hannibal, and uh, that was a suit. And, yeah, yeah, and, uh, she's a power suit, yeah. yeah. But um, she, she when she meets him and they have a talk outside, and, you know, she she starts kind of criticizing him, right, about his God and all that, and that's a safety just net. just the Occam's Razor discussion arises, yes. Exactly, the Occam's Razor. If you don't know what that means, it's that all things being equal, the simplest solution is usually the right one. Mm-hmm. And so but they have one that. person has one idea of what the simplest solution is, and Jodie Foster's is a completely different simple solution, yeah. but they're both simple solutions. But in... There's a point where she's like, oh, well, we all deluded ourselves or like a mass hysteria, like it's something we came up with. There's no evidence. And there's a question he poses to her because you can see that maybe it's getting to him a little bit. He doesn't like hearing this from her because he likes her so much or respects her. And he understands where she's coming from, but he asks her a hard, he asks her a hard question, which is, do you love your father? And she's, and she's stunned. And she says, of course, yes. And he goes, prove it. Prove it. Mm-hmm. You see, that's what we're talking about here, that science is kind of like the- Science will never, Well, it's a method. It's a method. It's a search for truth, right? Right. So it's uncovering the mysteries of the universe or magic, or we try to uh, as much as we can. I think it is finite because, you know, in science, the tool itself changes the outcome of what you're measuring, right? So there's so many factors that, um, you know, maybe we evolve and we get smarter, but- uh, the universe is so vast, we might not ever know everything about it, right? Or uh, science can tell you what and how and when, 
but it doesn't tell you why. Why? Right, mm-hmm. and so that's where we have to go to a different part when it, when it comes to I believe a faith, or if you don't believe in it, it's fine because Jody Foster is definitely uh, an atheist or agnostic person to start off. Yeah, with. which maybe by the end she isn't. Well, I don't know, but I definitely know that he's definitely a Christian, right? He's yes. definitely fully endorsed into the faith of God or the Christian God, and so they clash in that ideology, but the love is still there, and I love that because I often well, tell people of truth as well yes but i uh one of the things that irks me about religion so um and i'm saying religion not spirituality it's different um one of the things that irks me about religion is that um sometimes they will tell you that you have to marry another person within that religion or it won't work and i absolutely abhor that ideology yeah, right. because love the, the conquer- power of love all. is that it conquers all so that yeah. you can have two opposite ends of the spectrum like you do in this movie and yet their love sort of unites them in this commonality yeah. and they they learn to look past their minor grievances about their individualities and together they sort of it could be argued that together they make the the actual they make a movie whole. happen too. Yeah, uh, without Jodie Foster being in Matthew McConaughey's life, Matthew McConaughey is not who he becomes by the end of the movie. And without Matthew McConaughey in Jodie Foster's life, there's none of there's none of her growth as well. They they mature each other's characters so complementary of, of one another that I, I, yeah, I just don't think it's, this movie has a, an undertone of destiny running through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, even the horrible stuff that takes place in the movie uh, with the first launch or the first test yes. uh, run through, because that's a main part of this movie. Tom Skerritt, uh, who plays science advisor for a large chunk of it first in the early part of the movie? Okay, so for he context, plays the I, game. He's a scientist that plays the yeah, game. Yeah, and well. we're, we're drug along the entire way. Like we're introduced to his character right from jump at Arecibo, where he's like the guy driving in on site on a Jurassic Park oh. Jeep. There's another Steven. But Spielberg. you know what? Oh yeah, that was a Jurassic Park Jeep. But I, I want to say this too about Tom Skerritt's uh, character from the very get go. Right when he's kind of introduced as an asshole. Uh, what you were saying when they were they're at the array station. Yeah. He's being an asshole, but he's not wrong when he tells her, listen, there's only two outcomes that can come Somebody from this. Somebody has to play that role. Yeah, he's being a realist because he actually cares about her. He yep. thinks she's intelligent and he wants to see her uh, successful he and says, he knows how to get there. He says the same thing uh, when she flies into the test day uh, where he says, you know, I just want you to know that if the world were a fair place, you would be in the position that I'm in. Because fast forward, they build this, uh, they, they once they discover the signal coming from outer space and once they understand the details of the signal which are understood because of jodie foster's private primer. discussion primer per the primer uh discussion <laughs> with sr hatton played by john hurt uh who i want to say was specifically picked because uh of the mix of roles that he's always had and this character is like a mix of big brother and uh like a, a domineering tech yeah. genius so they figure out the details. It's like 6,000 pages worth of schematics, essentially, to build this ship that they don't know what the ship's going to do yeah. or, or device. And uh, we get introduced to the Tom Skerritt character and the James Woods characters and the Angela Bassett characters in more detail once the schematics and the the actual proof that there is life out there, um, we get their varying perspectives on it. And they sort of 
play a bigger role in the development of it because this is now a going to cost a lot of money to actually see it through. And they're still going. The the weird thing is they're going off of faith the whole time. Uh, faith is kind of mm-hmm. driving the whole thing because they don't know what the thing's supposed to do. There's no details. There's no step by step instruction manual on how to. Uh, get it started or what it's going to result in. These are yeah. extraterrestrial schematics that need to be put together to reach an unknown result. So they're sort of banking everything on Jodie Foster's character and her conviction for destiny. I, w- uh, I would even fact- say it's really Tom Skerritt's character because they don't listen to well, her at all. Like, like, uh, that's why said, destiny is so destiny trumps all of the agendas well, Destiny's the umbrella over this entire movie that says regardless of this person's opinion on it or this person's objective or this person's objective, some bad stuff's going to happen so that Destiny is is nurtured and kept in line with what needs to be done, which is eventually the human race making contact with an extraterrestrial species. Yeah. So you do but see would it some have been ugly stuff. Ellie, because there is a lot of stuff it, that it, happens it, to it get her there. always going to be Ellie is my point. I hope so. Because, you know, again, like Tom Scarrett's uh, character, there's a part where Haddon tells her, you are, are on the outside now. And she's like, I'm not on the outside anymore. And she's like, well, maybe not on the outside, but you're certainly being handed your hat. That's where the question mark, because at the end, uh, James Woods' stance is that could anyone have concocted this plan to put you in these positions? Could mm-hmm. it all have been a hoax? And because we'll get to why the word hoax is mentioned later on. Um because there's question that she went on a journey in the first place, which can't be refuted when you look at the evidence of uh, the 18 hours. Yeah, and it was different in the book, by the way. The 18 hours of static there's a lot recorded. More. Um, in the book, it was sand. There that was, was sand in, there. in the capsule itself. So. Um, okay, so to rewind a little bit, they've discovered these 6,000 pages, and they're building the thing, and there's a lot of money behind it. But three they, trillion, yes. But they um, and ninety seven. But they have a runoff, basically, uh, sort of a a runoff to determine the best candidate. And Matthew McConaughey is on the board of deciding who the candidate's going to be. So he gives Jodie Foster a heads up way in advance that he's on the board and that she's a front runner, of course, because it was her discovery, the signal itself. Yeah, can't send William Fishner up there because he's blind. And uh, and and this is the uh, conversation that interrupts. After McConaughey asked her about the love of her father. Yes. So they get interrupted before she can answer yeah, to the, prove it. The uh, balcony scene is interrupted mm-hmm. by this decision that the U.S. government is going to move forward with building what they've just discovered. So that's great. That's exactly what they want. But mm-hmm. now they have to determine the best candidate. And now you get into all the ex- existential discussions that we would actually have. We want to send as a civilization someone who speaks a language on our behalf that is fully well-rounded so jody foster's case for that is i found it i'm an astrophysicist i know the math i know the numbers and that's how they look at the signal they sent true false binary code to us essentially that we're gonna have to know the ins and outs of in order to communicate with them so she has a step ahead but then the conversation about god comes into play and that's from him and that's from matthew mcconaughey but yeah. there's some merit there at the same time. Yes. Um, 
but she's heartbroken over it because she he she knows that he was privy to information that others weren't, and she was not going to be asked that question. But he decided to um, when, at the end he had to ask it because he was under turmoil. You could yes. tell, and he didn't want to ask it, but he had to. His conscience made him do it because. What, there's two reasons. There's a selfish reason, and then there's you know behalf on humanity. He believes because if you are representing most of the world, he, like he was saying, ninety five percent of the world believes in a higher power or a deity of some sort. So it is um, a prevalent question: Do you believe in God? And she was flustered. But the thing about Ellie, what we love and what hurts her is that she's an idealist when it comes to science. That's the difference between her and Tom Skerritt because Tom Skerritt is definitely smart. But he plays the game, he understands life, and he's successful and ambitious. And he's trying to give her that information, but she's an idealist. Like even when she says, and they have that conversation where he's like, if this was a fair world. But then she says, I thought the world is what we make of it. Again, that is an idealist view. And that's why she lost. It might have been. She did lose. She she loses in the end. She was the forerunner. Enter Jake Busey. (laughs) Yeah, she was the front runner uh, when the pilot falls out, right? He was the front runner and then he stays home because their kids wouldn't want didn't want him to go. Yes. And then those were Robert Zemeckis' family members. Whoa, really? I didn't yeah, know that. I want to say the boy was his son and the uh, girl was his niece. Nice. Yeah. The daddy don't trivia. go girl. Yeah. Yeah. That mm-hmm. was wow, cool, man. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I see that she's an idealist and Tom Skerritt's an ambitious. And so, yeah, you're right. This happened in a way where if Ellie would have been there, and actually in the book she was, so they mm-hmm. were all there together. But in the book, Tom Skerritt's character, Drumlin, actually saves Ellie by jumping on her while the explosion, and he dies oh, saving so her. Ellie's actually on the landing uh, or up in the crane uh, when the to explosion where happens. The test. That's but interesting. Again, Drumlin saves her. Um, and, and kills himself in the to save uh-huh. her. So that's why I also it kind of affects me a little bit that he's not an all bad guy. He just no, plays the not game, no. and it might be selfish because he wants to be that guy. He he definitely uh, resigns his post right sure. to be Science a candidate, advisor, and he takes a backseat to it to be a candidate for this yeah. once in a lifetime mission. So it's a selfish thing, but you know what? I mean. Why wouldn't you want to be that? He, I mean, maybe he believes he's the best candidate. Well, you see, that's the part where I think uh, destiny is something that um, exists out there, and we are perhaps just a tiny co- contribution to what destiny will eventually be. And for what it's worth, these extraterrestrial beings that are in this movie, they may have a better understanding of destiny as well. So they picked up on the integrity and the conviction that Ellie's character had dedicated her life to reaching that end point of meeting them. Like Tom Skerritt wasn't going to win over the extraterrestrial beings and he wasn't going to be an ambassador that they wanted to see to begin with. They Mm. wanted someone who came from that. You know, I definitely think she's the best candidate for one main reason. Mm -hmm. She's an idealist and obviously they can read minds because really they took everything that she's had, even from the point where she's at the beach, that's a poster on her wall. Yeah, the Pensacola, that's yeah. a foreshadowing so, moment. And her father, they obviously can read her mind and they project out there to make her feel comfortable. So if mm-hmm. Tom Skerritt's Scarrett, character went out there, they would see the, uh, how do you say, uh, his strategy. You yes. know what I mean? And they probably, so the fact that she was an idealist made her a perfect ambassador yep. because... Well, that's a good representative, right? And even though she might not believe in God at that moment, and I don't even know if she believes in God at the very end, Mm -hmm. but what I do know is that she understands what faith is at the end because when she's on trial and James Woods asks her, 
asks her about the Occam's razor and she has to concede that. She has to concede to maybe she hallucinated it. Maybe SR hadn't made this giant hoax up in that, I mean, it's plausible because uh, we forget, I'm sorry, we forget to say that the first one blew up. She goes to Japan because SR Hannah has it. building a second one in Japan, which I love the reveal of that. Yeah. So <laughs> spicy uh, when we talk about movies because she uh, is lured on a dark, rainy night to... Uh, no, actually, does she have the conversation? Yeah, she she has like three yeah. face-to-face conversations with SR Hatton. One of them is well, video. to figure out... Well, the face-to-face one on the plane, was that was to figure one. out the pr- the primer, right? Yeah, and then after that, it's all... Oh, then it's all He's video. on Mirror oh, Space Station. In, yeah, he's, he's got dying cancer. on Mirror. That's right. And, the, and by and the way... He's up there because the air uh, or the... Uh, the oxygen-rich oxygen, is slowing down the yep. cancer and the anti-gravity. But in There's the book, by the way, in the end, he doesn't die. He actually cryogenically freezes himself and shoots himself out into space, hoping that some alien race will come across him and uh, cure his cancer or something. So, yeah, I mean, I really... Uh, sorry i, I kind of jumped forward but she learns what faith is because she, through that testimony he's absolutely asking her all these questions and she has to concede to them as a scientist yes that may be true yes i have to concede to that but then when he asks her then why don't you just give this all up why do all this and she says because i, I can't. can't right because isn't it interesting yeah and what she says mm-hmm. could be uh, directly implanted on somebody who's trying to uh, who's trying to defend their faith in God. You really could say well, she, that. Yeah, she's in that position. Is, yeah, is my theory, and it, that's what she finally understands why yeah, it hits her all at one one time. And that's why I say that I do believe she uh, has been converted from uh, atheism, which says there is no deity out there that presides as a god, versus something that is because she, she she's in a congressional hearing after all this, surrounded by the ninety five percent of people who have predisposed faith in a god but here is the one individual who may have access to the closest thing to what god is ever on a physical level she just lived through it and she has one she, she has her burden of proof is it her experience that's all that she's got and she says herself i wish that i could share the moments of humility uh the love the, the love the compassion the ease the peace that i felt with everyone in this room but she knows that she can't can't do it. Mm-hmm. That is something that that somebody that believes in it God believes in would God feel. feels and and says adamantly if they're about the right uh, cloth, of course, and if they're of the right cloth, yes. and they want to share that it. love. Yes, that's that's pretty much it, and that's the task for every God fearing human being on this planet, or uh, God loving. I like to say God fearing, God loving. Sure, because um, you know that's what I loved about this movie because it marries the two mm-hmm. to make you understand that science and, and spiritualism eye. is this the it's, it's, the it's got the same thing. goal the mm-hmm. seeker of truth mm-hmm. and so when she's in that position she is forced to understand everybody else's faith uh, arguments the criticism yeah because and the doubt. She, that's why she's like I can't do it and you know even mm-hmm. in the end when Matthew McConaughey is getting into the car and they ask her do you believe her and he says. Our ideologies are separate, but I, for one, believe her because yeah. he understands that she would never, ever say something like that Unless if it she didn't fully actually, believed if, in it. Yes, because she is of a mind of empirical evidence. Yeah. I like that there's this battle between them, but it's ultimately the same. And it really brought peace to my soul when I was a young person trying to answer questions that are far beyond me. This movie does 
an exemplary job of I won't say it's the best movie at doing this, but it does a great job so. of mixing the entire the soup of of ideas and philosophies and agendas and concepts and it says let me stir the whole thing up and this is the result and the ending's not ambiguous that's what i love about it the ending is very finite it says if you are a person of this belief and if you are a science driven individual odds are eventually you will you will understand the 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 symbiosis that not religion spirituality and science have spirituality that's waiting yeah. for you to discover and also to a certain degree McConaughey's character has that same uh, epiphany as well because like you said when she comes back and she's had this unique experience McConaughey's had that experience it's why he believes in God yes and there are things that are uh, sometimes unexplainable by uh, science because we can't go back in time. We can't measure with just tools in this plane of existence. That's the whole point is that we're talking about metaphysics now. We're talking about mm-hmm. afterlife. We're talking about things that we can't fathom, right? Absolutely. So can that be measured by tools that we have at our disposal in this plane of existence? I don't know. We might have to travel to the maybe Twilight someday, Zone for that. But you know? maybe not yet. When she arrives on the, the ship, or not the ship, the uh, craft itself or the, the, the ball, whatever you want to call it, she enters and she sees the the chair and she says the chair wasn't in the schematics so why is it there oh yes okay here's a reason why destiny it may have been maybe it's a page they didn't look at maybe it's a page they couldn't figure out maybe they didn't deduce that there was a chair that needed to be there because i'm one who believes there was a chair that needed to be there because if it wasn't there then she would have never stepped out of the chair when she got well actually at the same time you see, this is why it's like maybe that was interference with destiny because you remember what happens to the chair. It gets sucked up into the ceiling of the craft because of whatever gravitational force or uh, whatever's going on. The metal just clings to the top and it sucks her up. Had she not gotten out of the chair at that exact moment of time, she would have been sucked and up with it. And what was it that got her out of that chair? The compass of time. Uh, the compass. Th- yes, finding your way. That uh, That is destiny. Mm-hmm. That's It was That's foreshadowing. Meant when he gets out of the Cracker Jack and he gives it to her, she gives it back to him and this might save your life one day boom she says that line in the very beginning costa rica Boom! nobody's put that one together yeah so they go back and forth right and so Mm -hmm. i do want to go a little bit because we have and we've been getting really philosophical and again me this movie is about science and faith marrying to each other and the drive of loneliness to get her there to that point that's what her obsession because in the very end of the movie She's at ease with herself. Yeah. It doesn't matter that people don't believe her. She's found peace because she is now not alone. She went to the furthest extensions exactly. of the universe to realize that. And there was something there that was willing to accommodate her. Yes. And I and I want to even say this, like when she meets the alien life form and he says, this was built billions of years before we got here. We don't know who made this. All we know is that finding each other makes it more bearable we need connection we need love we need touch we need these things if if ellie if she had not gone through that uh where she still had her dad i don't think she would have the same drive yes it's because she's seeking connection and she's scared of it though by the people that are there like matthew mcconaughey she accepts kent but she even tells him i'll go alone if i have to i've done Mm -hmm. it before you see so she has this 
desire to be close to people but she pushes them away the uh-huh. ones that are actually there and that's why at the end she's finally at peace and she's not pushing anybody away she's actually you know got the kids with her and she asks them hey well what do you believe in and he goes i don't know and she's like that's a good question and she says that's an awful that's waste a of good space answer. right yeah. a good a good answer right so that's why I see the resolution in her that she did find her dad, but not didn't, didn't really find her dad. She found extraterrestrial life, which is what she's been looking for. But honestly, I think that extraterrestrial also, life was really her trying to find her mom in the beginning. The spirit world, the metaphysical right. thing that science can't. She's trying to go past that, but she doesn't realize that's what she's trying to do. And there, there, you're very right because while she found a resolution within the movie itself. She still has the realm of the unknown. We don't know what happens to her from that point forward. And, and it's not like it answered some afterlife question, because unless I missed something in the script, it's not like she died uh, in the series. She was conscious the entire time. You could say that she may have passed out if you're on one side of the argument, but certainly this wasn't like a, uh, a postpartum experience that she had. Well... Let's let's go into that. Postmortem, not postpartum. Oh, well, I, I definitely. Um, I do want to get into this, and I have to uh, set this up in context. Is what I'm going to talk about. Okay. So first, I'm going to go over the cinematography. Okay, mm-hmm. the cinematographer, the the director of photography, if you will, the DP. Um, his name is Don Burgess. Um, let's go ahead and start with Mo Money '92. <laughs> Damon did this. Wayans, yeah. love it. Richie Rich '94, Forrest Gump in '94, Forget Paris in '95, What Lies Beneath in 2000, Cast Away, Spider Man in '02. The one with Tobey Maguire, uh, Terminator 3 in 03, uh, he did Radio in 03, Polar Express, 13 Going on 30, Enchanted, Fool's Gold, Book of Eli, Priest, The Conjuring 2. Oh, uh, man, busy guy. Yeah, Wonder, Aquaman, and he's doing Witches, and he did Allied, which right. you didn't like. But um, I want to go over this because uh, this includes the director, Robert Zemeckis, and the cinematographer, um, and there's two scenes that I want to go over. Uh, the first one is where, because we're going to go over what you just said that um, maybe she didn't die, right? But what I want to say is that it was filmed like she was, because when she goes to the uh, Jap- uh, Japanese version, right? And the way they filmed it, now think about the way that astronauts are filmed getting on the shuttle. They're usually filmed in some epic way, maybe slow motion. You're referring maybe to some, the, uh, yeah. yes. Uh, go ahead, because but, I have my own interpretation. So of they this. filmed it in this kind of death scene right like she's going to an electric chair she's looking down and it's and there's no music it's not slow motion um you could even say she's walking the plank right um even the uh the japanese uh guys that are assisting her they stay behind and she walks forward again like walking the plank and those things down there are like sharks or something right and they do look like sharks yeah Uh, as the as the things are spinning around and it's also all above water, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, to the point where you can see the waves underneath. So mm-hmm. it does look like a very menacing um, set of circumstances. Yes, and so she's looking at that chair like it's an electric chair, right? And so she gets buckled up. And um, by the way, they even said that they designed her suit to look like Joan of Arc. Well, so that is somebody that had to go into the fray, right? Yes. A first, uh, a first adventurer, a first uh, person to be out there. And, and it, yes, and Ellie's supposed Perhaps to be that even person. A, Perhaps even a sacrifice to push further. Yes, exactly. So when she walks up there 
it's almost like she is walking to an electric she's chair to die. She's willing to die. Yes, what even I'm, Jodie yeah. Foster said that when she says ready to go, mm-hmm. she said in her mind she was thinking that that's really saying die. I'm ready to die. Yeah. Let's do yeah, this. Yeah, you listen to the commentary oh, as well. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> so I I love that she gets buckled in just like somebody in an electric chair. She gets strapped in and yeah. everything by There's these all guys. There's symbolism that are in black. of death. Yes, correct. Why would they be wearing black and red? That's danger. That's because danger. they don't know. They don't know and she doesn't know. Nobody knows. And if the fear of the unknown itself is the fear of death. Yeah. Because death is, you've mentioned this on yes. previous episodes, we don't know what death is like. Exactly. Even if you've had a near-death experience. Shoot, even if you've died and been brought back to life, you didn't really die for the Can't long haul. It, man. So you have no idea what it's like. Now, I will say, perhaps that is the best job that Zemeckis and the cinematographers could do of symbolizing a a journey into the unknown and rebirth. I don't say that she died, Mm -hmm. but it was filmed in a different way to give you that sense of dread when she's walking out there. Cause that's what it would be to be so scared of going into the unknown. It is like dying. And she has, uh, she's content with that. And I loved the way the cinematographer and Robert Zemeckis did it, even to the symbol symbolism of the two guards being in black, like it's her, executioners right it's so crazy what they did and little things like that throughout the whole film they've uh, manipulated your emotions to feel a different way than usual this is not Armageddon why can't Robert Zemeckis like make uh, advertising commercials to make (laughs) he probably did but I would say that you know this is not your usual Armageddon where they're making it romantic and epic this is meant to make you feel like you were dying you're going into another plane of existence and you're coming back with this experience of rebirth you're a different mm -hmm. person a better person it does transition and now that you mention it to a very claustrophobic feeling as well once she's in that sphere Mm -hmm. she's all alone she is by herself and you still have that impending fear of the unknown that's looming but as it progresses, as she makes her way through the wormhole, even though she's like, this is very violent, uh, and you can tell that her blood pressure is very high, but it's uh, you also know from the past that it's, it's tolerated, um, meaning like it's within the limits of she's not losing control. She's, she is the right person for this journey because regardless of, of the uh, dread and the ambiguity of how bad it could turn out she's still composed enough and she's brave enough because that the journey itself that she's going on has been what she has looked forward to or maybe sorry time courage would be a better word she's scared and she overcomes it to do what needs to be done life has been a preparation for that moment like it's, it's it's been all the loss that she's experienced all the setbacks all of the agony, even seeing her colleagues die at the hands of uh, Jake Busey, the terrorist who blows it up, all of that was part of her destiny to be well-equipped for the journey that lied ahead. If you put an atheist and uh, a, a believer in a room and you have them have at it, it's very... Uh, it's emotional. It, it can get emotional very quickly. It's because beliefs are attached to the foundation of who we are. And when mm-hmm. we're forced to get rid of something like that, like the chair... Which I believe the chair in the in the in the ball that she's in is actually her foundation of science, right? She has to let go. She notices the compass, right, and she lets go out of the safety harness of this chair of science. She has no control, and over she has it. to go yeah. on she faith, has to relinquish like, control. Yes, and so that is exactly how I feel is when you question somebody's foundation whether they base it off a science or a belief or an experience of course they can get testy because they've built their whole life on this Mm -hmm. and so if but but the removal of that control that she 
so hard. It she got her to where she to needed have. to be. Yes. And, you know, I do want to go over one more scene because I've talked about it okay. with you so many times. I know do you're it. probably tired of it. Do it. Man, that scene where Gina Malone, the, the child Ellie, she sees her dad on the floor with the popcorn downstairs when she's trying to watch the meteor shower. And she runs upstairs to get him his heart medication and it's like in slow motion and the and the uh the camera is tracking um her face the whole time and it's backing up into the restroom where the medication is when we track Uh, to the um, bathroom you realize you've been looking in the mirror the whole time and she opens the cabinet and gets the medication. When it closes, it closes on, on her, her present picture, day. The one that she has that mm-hmm. Matthew McConaughey picks up in yep. the frame. Now, to me, when I saw that scene, even as like a 12-year-old, I was like, how the hell did they do it? It was like, whoa. And for years and years and years, I did not know how they did that. I always ask myself questions. <laughs> well, yeah, they, they, did a, they did a mixture of the two, right? Yeah. And so me and... <laughs> You called out, and I love this because I never saw that. You were like, I don't like it because the stairway is, is on the is, is on the wrong side of the house. Yes, when she goes up. So we have but this question. Maybe that's on purpose. Yeah, we were saying that maybe it's because it was looking in the mirror. Right? When you look at your past, you see a reflection of yourself, so to speak. And you also see things that may have been handled incorrectly in your past. I know I go through that a lot where I wish, you know, I could go back in time and and tweak things differently but that's me resisting the path of t- the arrow of time that i've been on and the destiny quote unquote that i've been on i n- can't necessarily go back and affect my destiny what i can do is be more cognizant of what my destiny may be trending towards and say okay every moment of time i'm going to spend uh, more responsibly and more um, just adhere to the bigger picture that I was so oblivious to in my past and the the butterfly effect sort of thing. And that's why it's such an interesting scene to to comment on because, yeah, as a kid, she's right away uh, interviewed or at least she tells the local law enforcement, she says, I wish I would have had the medicine there. Um, yeah, but you were on a path. You were outside looking at the meteor shower taking place, waiting for your dad to get the popcorn ready. Had you not cared about the meteor shower as much, you would have been on the inside, and this may not have happened to begin with. But then, had you been inside, that would be insinuating that you weren't the astronomy buff. There's so many interweavings. It's the Doctor Strange philosophy that I always go back to, where (laughs) it's just endless amounts of potentialities, yet we are here on one. As long as you are alive and your your heart is beating and your mind is working, you are on a path that you were destined to be on. Yeah, and so... Um, there's a couple more things I'm going to touch on and then we'll let you guys go for the day, right? (laughs) Okay, go see Contact. One, I want to tell you, in 2011, Jodie Foster was part of a group of private um, investors that um, saved the SETI's uh, telescope array in California. That's cool. So I think this movie had an impact on the actual players that were there from Carl Sagan giving them seminars and teaching them about science and being so into it. Like there's a story that Jodie Foster says that she was talking to Carl Sagan and he had a piece of food in his fork for 20 minutes and he was talking and he was so into it that he forgot it was there and that she said she feels the same way about movies. Kind of like me and you, we can probably sit here and talk about movies all day Mm -hmm. because we're so passionate about it. And that's how Carl Sagan 
was so passionate about what he was doing that affected everybody else. We are passionate about the movies, yes, but aren't we, are. we passionate <laughs> about the discussions that can be had with these movies too? Yes. And um, I also think that our passion for movies is married with our passion for connection. Mm-hmm. I think that movies are a shared um, experience that we all have in common. So if I don't know somebody and we both like a certain movie, we can get excited about it. Very and now we have a common ground and we become friends. Yeah. And so these movies are more than just a drug or uh, some kind of delusion, shared delusion, or just a mindless entertainment. These are sometimes important to people because like a mixtape of music, it'll say something that you couldn't say in words to somebody else. And it's a way to kind of explain something in two hours or like when you give somebody your favorite book, your favorite song, favorite movie, these are all you trying to connect with somebody that you care about or that you make a bridge. And so is the commentary as well because after... We both grew up, after watching these movies, we wanted to talk about them, and we wanted somebody to talk about them with. And while we may have not had a a fleshed-out, detailed commentary on something like Contact in 1997 when we watched it as teenagers, here we are in 2020, being realized here in real time. So that lets me know that we're on the right track. I know. And I think with that, we've said it all. And I just want to sign off and tell you, CQ, W9GFO, we're signing off.